Okay, page 11 is where we are in your uh, notes. That's where we're going to begin today. <coughs> On a new section. Now, if you notice, uh, just I want to tell you a little bit about these notes so you know how they work here. You see at the top of page 11, it says Christian Theology 101. Underneath, it's section 3. So we are beginning section 3 today, which is the study of the nature of man. That, the fancy theological word for that is anthropology, but that's a word that's used, of course, uh, in a secular sense too. And the title of this particular lesson within this section is The Image of God. And so the next lesson after this is titled From Satan to Us. But we just finished section 2, which was the nature of God. Now we're beginning the nature of man. So there are different ways that uh, people go about teaching through theology. They don't have to go in any particular order, of course. This is just the way that I think it makes the most sense. We've just spent several weeks talking about who God is, and now we're going to spend the next six weeks or so talking about who we are. And that's vitally important. This first lesson, titled The Image of God, is talking about who we are apart from a sin nature. So we're going to look at the initial original state of Adam. He was, of course, truly human. Adam and Eve were truly human before sin entered in. And then the next lesson, we're going to talk about how sin entered in and then what that did to us as human beings. Okay, so that's kind of how this is going. And this is really important, in my view, to talk about this now, because the next section we're going to talk about is Christology, which is the study of Christ. And Christ is truly God and truly man. Well, what is truly God? We just talked about that in theology proper. What is truly man? Well, we're going to talk about that now. And then the next section, we're going to talk about how is Christ both truly God and truly man. Okay, so that's... A little bit about where we're going through the notes and how this all fits together. And uh, my goal today is perhaps to make it to the bottom of page 11, but I don't know if we'll make it quite that far. Uh, so we'll just see how it goes. Okay. Thanks, Dean, for making those copies. Appreciate that. Um, and I'll go ahead and say a prayer, and then we'll begin. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the moisture, the precipitation that we, of course, need so badly here. Thank you that we've gotten so much in December, and we ask you to continue to send the precipitation, that uh, we would have uh, more water this coming year, or this year, I could say now, than we've had in a long time. God, we thank you for a new year and the opportunity to start fresh, and we ask that our minds would be centered on you today, and that in Christ, we would have our hearts knit together, and that we would be seeking to uh, learn and grow through your word. God, we love you and thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Let me make sure I'm on the right thing here. All right. The image of God is what we're talking about today. Very, very, very important topic. And I'm going to start with this question. Someone asks you, who are you? There are, of course, a variety of ways that you can answer that question. You can give them your name, you can tell them what you do, how many kids and grandkids you have, what you like to do for a hobby, you can say all sorts of things. But at a very baseline definition, we are human beings, creatures of God, made in His image. That's what's true for all humans. Now, to say that though, we have to kind of know what we're saying. Because when I say we're made in the image of God, your mind can start going one of a hundred different directions. Particularly if you were raised in an LDS setting. You have an idea of what image of God means that may not be what the Bible says. So it's important to analyze this, all right? Norman Geisler, in his systematic theology, puts it this way. God is absolutely perfect, and it follows, therefore, that his creation was also perfect. Moses declared, he is the rock, his works are perfect. David added, as for God, his way is perfect. Jesus said, your heavenly father is perfect. Nothing less than perfect can come, come from an absolutely perfect being. So if someone says, who are you? Can you say I'm perfect? <laughs> well, in the next lesson, when we talk about how sin entered the world, that'll mess everything up, okay? But for now, as we're thinking about the initial state of human beings, we can say that it's true that Adam and Eve were perfect. Didn't God say good, very good at his creation? He didn't create creatures with sin. He's not the author of sin. 
So let's have our minds go back to that time of perfection. That's where we're going to be the next couple of weeks, that time of perfection. So these will be positive classes, and then after that it's going to get pretty negative. So enjoy the positive, all right? Every single class after these next two are going to talk about sin. So let's just enjoy what we have while we have it. Made in His image. Here you go, following along in your notes. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is foundational to our understanding of who man is in light of who God is. So write that down. The foundational text is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And let's all go back to Genesis 1. I shouldn't have to tell you where that is in your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, and it's toward the end of that chapter. Verses 26 and 27. We've looked at this already when we were talking about the nature of God. Do you remember what we see in Genesis 1.26 that tells us some interesting information about the nature of God? Good. We see plurality, don't we? God said, let us make man in our likeness. But we also see singularity. Because there's only one image and only one likeness, isn't there? It doesn't say, God said, let us make man in our images. Let, let us make man in our likenesses. One image, one likeness. Well, before we were focusing on really the us and our in that passage, but now let's focus on image and likeness. I'll read this, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them, that's important to note too, see that plural pronoun, them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Here's another important aspect. Male and female, he created them. All right? Male and female. There at the end of verse 27, those are the two God-ordained genders, and both were made in his image. All right? And now we're going to answer the question, what does God's image entail? But because of where our society is at this point, it bears dwelling on this point, at least for a moment, that there are only two God-ordained genders. Uh, Jesus, of course, references this passage when uh, he says, haven't you read in the beginning God made them male and female? <laughs> Recently I saw some, I don't even know what, what medium I was seeing it on, but uh, someone trying to make the argument that in the New Testament there's a plurality of genders. <laughs> the New Testament talks about more than just male and female, you know. That Jesus was open and Paul was open to all kinds of Different genders. Give me verses. Yeah, there you go, right? That's what we should always say. Chapter and verse, please. Chapter and verse. Well, here from the very beginning, this is foundational, right? We understand the Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. You could say Genesis 1 through 12 is really the foundation for everything that follows. Male and female are the two God-ordained genders. And both were made in his image. So we see explicitly at the end of verse 27, but even in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. And then he goes on to say, let them rule. Male and female. Made in his image. Male and female together called man. Okay, just a general term. Let man rule. That includes male and female. All right. Now image can sometimes communicate the idea of a copy but it is best understood as representation in this context. And there's a clear rule and authority aspect going on. When we just examine these two verses, where we initially hear that God is making man in his image, this is the first place we hear it. If you're seeking in this, these first couple verses to define what that means, you can see that there's a, an authority aspect that's just germane to what it means to have the image of God. If someone has the image of God, that person, whether male or female, is able to rule over, have dominion, to exercise authority over all other creatures on the face of the earth. Are you seeing that in the text? Okay. What does it mean to bear the image of God? Well, one of the things, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but one of the things is that there's a rule and authority that comes with that. Man 
and again, man and woman, when I say that term, those who bear God's image, that's, that's the apex of God's creation. You see where we are in Genesis 1, we're here toward the end. We're reaching the pinnacle of God's creation. Because only one of God's creatures bear his image. Only one. Human beings, male and female. And so, as the pinnacle of God's creation, as the only image bearers, human beings are to rule over all other creatures, to exercise dominion, to be stewards over the face of the earth. Right? That's a key element when it comes to image. Now, that word for likeness, that refers to a pattern, a shape, or a form. And what we can deduce from that is that man's nature corresponds to God's nature. And there's a sonship aspect. We're going to look at specifically where Adam was called the son of God. But you can think of uh, in Acts 17, when Paul is at Mars Hill, he's preaching there in Greece to a bunch of Greeks, a bunch of philosopher-type people, and he quotes one of their own poets. And something that one of their own poets said is that we are offspring of God. That we are the offspring or the children of God. Now, <clears throat> don't jump ahead and interpret that through Western 20th century lenses or whatever, okay? Think about what that poet might have meant as a Greek and what Paul meant as he was borrowing that and using it in his sermon. I think just, again, at a base level, if we can say just fundamentally what is there that we are all offspring or children of God, well, it's that there's a, there's a creation aspect that God is the creator, made us his creatures, and being in his image, our nature in some sense corresponds to his nature. And that we, as his image bearers, are able to have some sort of unique relationship to God that a dog can't have, or that a cow can't have, or that a mountain can't have. Okay? We are able, because we are offspring of God in this sense, we are able to relate to God. And of course, Paul uses that terminology, we are his offspring, to go right into the salvation message. We are his offspring. Here's how you get to know him. Here's how he can become your father. And he gives them the gospel. Okay, so we are his special creation made in both his image and his likeness. And you can get a little weird when you try to define these too specifically. If you want to separate these so specifically that image is something radically different than likeness or vice versa, don't do that. Okay, uh, The Bible does seem to pair these together quite often to use them interchangeably. There are some slight differences in their definition, but the idea is that we are all made in the image and likeness of God. Our nature corresponds to God's nature. We represent God as stewards on the earth. We have special rule and authority over the rest of creation. You can just sum it up generally in that sense. Okay. And if you want a, a cute little phrase, perhaps, you can say that the human soul bears the divine signature. I like that phrase. Okay? Each human soul bears the divine signature. There is something different about humans and the immaterial aspect of who we are, where God's fingerprints are, are on our being because we are made to reflect his nature in ways that other creatures can't. All right? You guys doing all right so far? Are we tracking? Got any questions? I'll pause here for any clarifications that are needed. I love teaching anthropology. I think it's just so important. Because once you, once you understand who we are, you can understand more how salvation works, how the church works. You know, you just start... It affects everything about your existence, okay? Seems like the idea of image and likeness in the aspect of ruling over is just is just glossed over all the time. Yeah. And it's seen as physically we look like him or yeah. um, you know, we act like him or we love like him or we get angry like mm -hmm. him. But the whole just ruling over everything else that he's created on earth just totally gets glossed over and we don't even think about it or talk about it. Yes. Yeah, um, and that is so, so true. You can actually, if you want to jot this down as a cross-reference, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 goes into more detail about man's call to rule over the earth. And how this fits into God's big picture of the program that he's working. This is pretty amazing stuff. We fail. I mean, you look around, how are we doing with stewarding the earth? <laughs> Whether you believe in climate change or not, whether you believe in just 
whether we're good neighbors or not. Okay, you can look and you can find all kinds of cracks, at least, in the system, so to speak, about how we're doing with stewarding the earth. Adam, of course, failed from the beginning. And we'll look at that soon, where he sins. Sin enters the world. Death through sin. Things die. If you want just an easy example, how, how did your garden do last year? Now, if you had a really good garden, you'd say, well, I'm doing great stewarding the earth. But if you're like me, you'd say, boy, we stink at this. <laughs> We're bad at this. Well, here's how it fits in the picture. We fail. Who succeeds? Through the person of Jesus. He comes as the perfect or ultimate, not just king, not just uh, you know, ruler, but steward. He's the ultimate man. And one day, he's going to come, and he's going to put the whole world in perfect submission, isn't he? His dominion is going to be from sea to sea. Where we have failed, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to complete the task and fulfill that initial mandate of have dominion over all the earth. Now, we don't get to say, we don't get to cop out here and say, well, Jesus is going to do it, so let's not even worry about it. You know, who cares if I dumped oil down the sewage tank or whatever, uh, the sewage thing in my neighborhood? Who cares if the motor oil is spilling everywhere? Who cares? Jesus is coming back. The whole world's going to burn. We don't get to do that. That mandate back in Genesis 1 still applies to us. Where we are to do our best, especially now as saved individuals, regenerate, born-again individuals, we are to do our best to reflect God's stewardship that He's called us to have, to reflect beauty in the earth. But we know that one day this will ultimately be fulfilled by Jesus. And so you got Psalm 8, and then you have 1 Corinthians 15 that get into that too. 1 Corinthians 15, like 20 to 28, the, the 20s verses there. Okay? All right, well, let's look at a few of these verses that are on your sheet. <clears throat> Luke 3.38, we're going to see here that Adam, of course, was directly made by God. But this is where we get a very interesting term that's used, a very interesting label slapped onto Adam, a label that you perhaps would not choose for Adam. But Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he did. So what you have here at the end of Luke 3 is a genealogy of Jesus. You have a bunch of names. When it comes to this part in your Bible reading, your eyes glaze over and you think, okay, I can skip because it's all the same. I can skip. I get it. I get it. We have all been there. But the danger of skipping over verses is you might miss stuff like this. Someone want to read uh, verse 38, the last verse of Luke 3? Ladies first. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. All right, so we're going all the way back in genealogy, all the way to Adam. From Jesus back to Adam. And who came before Adam? Well, you, you can't say Adam was the son of any human father, right? Everyone else has a human father in this list. And so, again, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke says, Adam the Son of God. Now, that's a phrase that, of course, we're familiar with because Jesus is the Son of God. Yet, in a sense, Adam is also the Son of God in that he was directly made by God. We were indirectly made by God through earthly parents. Adam was directly made by God. Okay, we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. Okay, now let's go back to Genesis 5. We're... we're out of Bible order, but we're in theological order here because I want to show you some stuff in order. Genesis chapter 5. You've got Adam, the son of God, who now has a son of his own, Seth. This is, of course, after the Cain and Abel incident. But let's have someone read verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 5, 1 through 3. Rex, you want to do that one? Okay. One through three. <clears throat> this is a written account of Adam's life. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam was, had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness. In his own image, he named him Seth. Okay. Now, what do you find interesting here about the way this is explained? Particularly verse 3. 
Yeah. Because Adam, the son of God, made in the image and likeness of God. Seth, he is born, and he is in the image and likeness of who, according to verse 3? Adam. All right. Now, this is pretty interesting stuff. Of course, what this means is he inherited all kinds of genetic traits from his dad. Okay, we'll just start with really simple uh, observational stuff. Okay, we'll say Adam had brown eyes. Eve had brown eyes. Here comes Seth, brown eyes. All right, image and likeness in that sense. Okay, now yeah, there could have been some recessive trait stuff going on. I could make a pundit square and we could talk about that. That still says Merry Christmas. Uh, sorry, I didn't update that for the next holiday. Um, <clears throat> all right, so you've got that going on. He looks like his parents. However, we can also infer from this, because image and likeness, we know, contains more than just physical characteristics. He inherited the image and likeness of God. Adam bore the image and likeness of God. A part or a key element of the image and likeness of Adam is the image and likeness of God. And so if Seth receives the image and likeness of Adam, he's also receiving the image and likeness of God. Now, what's also interesting, and again, we're going to kind of push this off because that's the bad news stuff. In Genesis 3, Adam fell, inherited death, spiritual death. That also gets passed on to Seth. And we'll talk more about that as we go on. But there was this indirect transmission of the image and likeness of God. With Adam and his creation, a direct transmission. God made him out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into him life, directly image of God. Now with Seth, we have an indirect thing going on. He's receiving image and likeness from his father. God is no longer directly crafting human beings as he was with Adam. Now this gets into something kind of interesting. I'll just throw this out there. You might care to study this further. You may not. I don't know, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, all right? So there are three main views when it comes to how people today receive the image of God. There is creationism. Now, when we see creationism, we think uh, the belief that God created the world in six literal 24-hour periods. But this is a different kind of creationism. Then there's a really interesting word, traducianism. And then there's another view, which is uh, pre-existence, all right? Um, basically, with creationism, the view is God directly crafts the image well, actually, you know what? <clears throat> he directly crafts people. Still. So the view with creationism is that you don't just inherit naturally your body and uh, your, your image of God, your um, immaterial aspects, your soul, your spirit. It's not indirect. But... God is directly crafting body and soul in the womb of a mother. That's the creationism view. Okay? Not that God has kind of set things in motion and now he's backed up and indirectly man is being created. But this view holds that God is still directly crafting each one in the womb of his mother. Now, traducianism is uh, basically, I mean, I'm sure you can deduce this, God indirectly crafts through the processes he established. So this view is, look, God set things in motion in Genesis. Yeah, he, he had to directly craft Adam out of dust of the ground. That had to happen. But from that point forward, Adam is to no Eve. A man is to leave his father and mother, and the two become one flesh. And now he's kind of just set it in motion, and indirectly, each body and soul is formed through this process that he has set up. And so this view doesn't say that God is directly crafting 
the body and spirit within the mother, but that it's a part of the process. Neither view, of course, diminishes the true humanity of the child in the womb. Okay, that's not what either view, this view does. Okay, they're both upholding the true humanity. It's just how that works. Now, pre-existence, this predates, the pre-existence view pre-existed uh, Mormonism. Okay, so we're not talking about Mormonism here. This is a, a Greek view, <clears throat> Greek philosophical view that said, look, God created all souls in the beginning. Eternity passed. Created all souls. And then, bodies are formed through this indirect process, and he boop, puts the souls in the bodies. Just like, uh, I don't know, like those little tubes that come down at the bank when you're in the drive-thru. Here comes a soul down into the body. But they were already created before the bodies were. Kind of interesting. But I'm not even going to write that one on the board. It's basically, when it comes to the, the Christian perspectives on this, you've got your two options. Creationism and traducianism. I tend to lean toward traducianism, but kind of impossible to know exactly. All right? Something interesting to think about. So you've got Adam directly made by God, Adam's children receiving the image of God through Adam, also receiving a sin nature. They're receiving the image and likeness of Adam. And then you've got this interesting verse in the New Testament all the way toward the back of your Bible that shows this process has maintained. In James 3.9, it's talking about Christians holding their tongues, how it's important for us to use our tongues wisely when we speak of others. And so uh, James 3.9 is going to give us some direction about how we should use our words. But it's also going to give us some other insight. Would someone read verse 9, James 3.9? Who's got it? Go ahead. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. With your mouth, the words that you use, you're able to bless and you're able to curse, right? But who are you blessing or cursing? What does it say? Yeah, those who are made in the image of God. So here he's talking about your ability to either bless or curse anybody. And no matter who we're talking about, as long as we're talking about a human being, we're talking about someone made in the image of God. And so in James's theology here, it's quite clear, all people have retained God's image. All people have retained the image of God. The image has spread to and applies to all people. Okay? The image is spread to all people. The image applies to all people in James's theology. See that? Okay. I'll pause there again for any thoughts or questions on any of that stuff. Should we take a vote on who's a creationist and who's a traducianist? You'll, you might need some time to think about that one, huh? Pretty interesting. Yeah, a lot of times we... A lot of times. Maybe never we think about that. But it, it is important to think about and see where what Scripture shows you. And you just got to stop where Scripture stops. That's always the problem, right? You pick up these hints and you think, oh, we're going this way. And so you fill out the rest in your mind. Well, don't do that. Stop where Scripture stops. Couldn't there be an argument against creationism, though, God directly crafting people still? Adam was perfect. They were perfect. His creations are perfect. That's not what we see today. Yeah. Yep, I'd say so. Yeah, I mean, if we agree with that Norm Geisler quote at the beginning, God is perfect, all of his creations are perfect and very good. Well, there's something different about today because in sin my mother conceived me, David said. And so, yeah, that's a key argument for the Traducian position. So, Good. You're not only here on New Year's Day, you're here with your brains. How good is that? That's so good. You didn't leave them at home. <laughs> In bed, even though that's maybe where you want to be. All right. <clears throat> okay, every person bears the image of God. This is not something that can be turned on or off depending on behavior or circumstances. Now, that's really important. Okay. All the time, 24-7, 365, a human being is bearing the image of God. Hitler bore the image of God through his whole life. Okay. Uh, you know, St. Mother Teresa bore the image of God her whole life. 
Billy Graham bore the image of God his whole life. Okay, so circumstances, beliefs, behaviors, none of that affects whether a person bears the image of God. It's it's just like saying, it does that person exist? Well, yeah, a person exists. If a person can cease to exist, that person can cease to have the image of God. But behavior, circumstances, that does not affect the image. This attribute of humanity separates us from the rest of creation. And again, mankind is the pinnacle of creation, as seen in the creation order, as seen in the fact that only humans uh, receive the image. Mankind is the pinnacle. Okay? I'm just building you up here these next couple of weeks before we tear you down with sin. Okay? <laughs> Take you down, down to Chinatown, all right? From MacArthur and Mayhew's Systematic Theology, while not God himself, man reflects the image and likeness of God in wonderful, complex, and mysterious ways. Isn't that true? All right. So now we're going to go get into the bottom half of page 11, talking about the various angles that we can see the image of God in humans. Now the first is ontologically. That's a, a funny word. But this has to do with the nature of being. You can write that down. This is the nature of being. Basically, what we're saying here is that you can understand, one of the ways you can understand the the image of God in humans is that we have true existence, true, real existence. We're not living in some matrix. We're not a figment of God's imagination. That would not be a real existence. But we bear his image, and just as God is real, so we are real. We are living in a real universe. So mankind, each human, is a living personal being. That's a key element, a living personal being. Each human has a self-conscious personhood. And each human has real body and real spirit. Now, next week we'll get into how we want to slice that that up, uh, how we want to skin that cat, so to speak. Do we believe that man is just body and soul? That's dichotomy. Do we believe man is body, soul, and spirit? That's trichotomy. Do we believe something else? Okay, we'll get into all that next week. But at, at a very base level, again, we're just doing fundamentals here. Man has true material, that's our body, and true immaterial, our spirit, our soul, that, that sort of thing. So obviously, God does not possess a body. However, through the body, mankind fully expresses the image of God among creation. This is how limited creatures show true existence. Okay? So uh, there is debate historically in church history as to whether or not our bodies reflect the image of God in any way. Uh, among, this is among Christians with a biblical understanding that God does not have a literal confined body like we do okay we recognize that so is there a way in which our bodies reflect the image of God well I'd say in this sense at least we could say it through our bodies we're fully expressing the image of God among creation especially when we consider the image of God is to be reflected in our stewardship how are you going to do that without a body because you don't have God's omnipotence you can't speak something into existence you can't say to your garden produce a whole bunch of lush tomatoes, okay? You can't do that. So through your body, you have to express the image of God. And since we are limited creatures, through our bodies, we can show true existence, true real existence, that we are ontologically in the image of God. We are real beings, all right? Mandy. How much does it have to do with um, maybe communicable attributes, maybe more so than... Does that play in not, not just likeness, not just the image or the shape, mm-hmm. but yeah. his communicable attributes? Yeah, so the fact that we are limited plays into this a lot. Okay? There is only one unlimited being, creator. Anybody else, anything else is a creature and by definition is limited. We've tried to express this very clearly through this class. Huge divide. Creator, creature. Because we are limited, okay, we have to express the image of God somehow and communicable attributes. Okay, how are you going to express love and mercy? How are you going to wash each other's feet without a body? 
Okay? So we, we do that sort of thing, expressing his image, expressing who he is with those communicable attributes uh, through our bodies. And yeah, that is a part of showing the image of God is being able to reflect the communicable attributes of God. Can a, can a horse love? Can a horse love in the same way a human being can love? Absolutely. All right. Very good. I'm glad you all were on the same. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, because there, there's a sense in which your dog, your cat, or whatever, you come home, there's some love expressed. Yeah. The, yeah. There's a, there's, you can, you can uh, receive stuff, immaterial stuff from animals. Okay? It's kind of hard to explain all that. But can an animal enter into a covenant? Oh, of course not. Okay. So like the covenant of marriage. Can you wed your cats? <laughs> That's the response we should have. Okay. There's a distinction. Joe, you have a question or a thought? So you're saying talking to our plants doesn't help. <laughs> no, it could help. It could help you a lot, Joe. <laughs> it might help, but they don't hear you. Just so you know. All right. Okay. Well, let's go on to the next one. Volitional. Human beings are volitional. This has to do with the will. That's your blank there. Has to do with the will, the desire, the choice that we can make. So there's the word will, choice, even reason. Because how do you make choices in life? How do you express your desires? How do you bring your will to fruition? Well, a lot of times, of course, it's through reason. It's not always through reason. We know that. But uh, we're able to reason as those made in God's image and make choices. No other created being has volitional will like humans. There is a moral consciousness that exists within all human beings. Man also has the obligation of personal responsibility. So again, you can see um, this reflected in other creatures. For example... The dog that you have, a well-trained dog that you have at your house. There's a choice that that dog can make based on consequences, right? If you've trained your dog, that dog knows to do or not to do certain behaviors based on how you've trained it. But is there a moral consciousness that exists within that beast? No. It just knows consequences, right? It gets scratched behind the ears for certain things. It gets a newspaper for other things, okay? That's how animals are. But with human beings, there's a moral consciousness where we're actually able to consider with our reasoning, is this right or is this wrong? Is this true or is this false? Is this good or is this bad? Animals don't have that. And we have the obligation of personal responsibility. Will there be at the great white throne judgment dolphins and lizards? No. No. Now, dolphins are what supposedly the smart, one of the smartest animals. Are they going to be judged for the choices they made? Absolutely not. There's a distinction. We have moral consciousness and we have obligation with our will, the choices we make. Okay? Intellect. This has to do with man's ability to think and reason. <clears throat> to have rationality and logic. Imagination, advanced communication even. We know that animals can communicate. Angels even can communicate. But there is a, an aspect where we, of course, are greater than angels in that we are made in the image of God. Now, in this body that we have and in this earthly existence, we're a little lower than the angels. That's why in Hebrews it says Jesus had to be made a little lower than the angels when he came to earth. So, uh, in our overall grade, we're lower than the angels right now. Right now. There's coming a day we're going to judge angels. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that. That's pretty cool. However, we have the image of God and angels don't. Angels have names. Michael, Gabriel, etc. Angels have names. Angels are personal. Angels have a pretty good degree of intellect and morality and obligation to God. Not that they will be at the great white throne judgment either, though. 
But we know that angels, some angels fell. We're going to hear soon talk about Satan. Satan was an angel. He fell and took other angels with him. They made a choice. It was a moral choice. All right? However, at the same time, they don't have the image of God. We do, and we have, well, what have we looked at so far? We have true existence, we have will and moral consciousness, and we have intellect here that includes things like imagination and advanced communication. We can create, as we reflect the, uh, the image of God, we're able through our intellect and imagination to think of things and create with our hands reflecting God as creator. Now again, we're never going to become the creator. However, we can reflect the fact that he creates and that we create. My dad just finished uh, restoring a 1950 Ford pickup. It's beautiful. Angels don't do that stuff. They just don't. Angels don't have rule and authority and dominion over the face of the earth. They're not given that charge. All right? But we, because we receive this communication from God and we have the, the image that includes all these things, we're able to uh, steward the earth and, and reflect God's image while doing it. No other created being has, I think it's supposed to say, has intellect like humans either, which is the force of Jude 10. Oh yeah, Jude 10 is pretty interesting. You get this in 2 Peter also. But in Jude 10, it's talking about false teachers. And it says these false teachers are like unreasoning animals. <laughs> well, why is that an insult? Well, because as creatures made in the image of God, we are to have reason, rationality, logic, intellect. And so you can be so debased in your sin that you're like an unreasoning animal. Okay? All right. Emotion is another way that we show the image of God. This is man's ability to feel. Man's ability to feel. Now, I put feelings here in quotations because sometimes that can be, it just be bad to talk about feelings. But it is a real part of our existence, isn't it, that we... We do feel things. We have emotion. We know what it's like to be grieved. We know what it's like to be overjoyed. We just do. And that cha- that the channel uh, that it, these things come to us is through our emotion, through our feelings. And there's a simultaneous aspect. Now, this is really cool. You know what it's like to be grieved and joyful at the same time. You lose a loved one. But you know that loved one loved the Lord, knew the Lord, and is in heaven? And you're able to grieve for yourself and also rejoice for that person. Dolphins can't do that. (laughs) Okay? And there's, of course, the outflow response of our feelings, too. Um, So much of our emotion ends up in these other areas. Our will, our intellect, our relationships that we're going to look at next... The way that we live and respond to things in the world, our emotion plays into that. Now it's the Christian's job to have self-control in that area. But self-control doesn't mean you ignore emotion altogether. Self-control doesn't mean reject this aspect of the image of God. Self-control means have it under control. That's what it means. Right? So the experience of emotions is essential to the human nature. Through it, we express more of the image of God as He too grieves, rejoices, has anger and compassion. You see that in Scripture. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit can be grieved. We see God rejoicing over His people. Zephaniah chapter 3. God rejoices over His people with singing. That's pretty cool. He sings over His people from rejoicing. Of course, God has wrath. You see that a lot. Look at Revelation. You see the wrath of God, don't you? But also God has compassion. He has great compassion for people. That he relented of the disaster he was going to bring upon Nineveh. Well, that came from his compassion, didn't it? So God, too, has emotion. And he's perfectly self-controlled in his emotion. One more, relationally. This is how we are dependent on one another. That's your blank there. Relationships has to do with how we are dependent on one another. We reflect the image of God with our ontology, volition, intellect, emotion, and relationship. So, we know what it's like to be in a loving relationship. Or to serve others. To worship. That involves 
A relationship. You have to have a relationship to worship or to honor another, to bless another, to praise another, to have a friend. And of course, marriage and family. Those are all relationship aspects of our existence. To love, serve, worship, honor, bless, praise. To have friends. To have a husband or a wife. To have children. To have parents. All of that comes from, of course, the fact that we're made in the image of God. Now, uh, employing your knowledge of the Trinity, you guys are all experts on the Trinity now. Employing your knowledge there, how does God have relationship? Say, eternity past, before the foundation of the world. How did God have relationship? You can do this. I believe in you. Okay, Stan taps out. (laughs) Anybody speak at any time, feel free. You remember this? Okay. Okay. You got Father, Son, Spirit. Each is God. Are you affirming that with me this morning? Okay, but the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. Spirit is not the Son. Okay, now dependency, we got to be careful about that, saying any kind of dependency. But what can we say, again, if we're just looking for basic fundamentals? If the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father, the Father's not the Son, all the way around. Yet each one is God and eternally existent. Can we say there is relationship eternally between Father, Son, and Spirit? No. There had to be, right? If the Father's not the Son and the Son's not the Spirit and all the way around, that means there's a distinction there that's existing eternally. And because of that distinction, there's relationship. Has the Father always loved the Son and the Spirit? Has the Spirit always loved the Son and the Father? So there's... Love eternally in relationship within the Godhead. Isn't that amazing? Okay. Um, Let's see. Oh, now with with humans, it is a little bit different. I do want to make that distinction because I did have for your blank there dependency. Is it right to say the Father is dependent on the Son? He's got to be real careful. Because, yeah, when you you say that, it sounds like, like we're dependent on food. Okay, now, God is not dependent on anything. He's self-existent, isn't he? He's self-sufficient. There's nothing that God needs from the outside. And each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, is God. No, no person lacks anything. Okay, so you just have to keep all that in mind. But as human beings, we're dependent on one another. 1 Corinthians 11.11. This is an interesting verse. 1 Corinthians 11.11. In the Lord, neither is man independent from woman or woman independent from man. For just as woman has her origin through the man, so man has his birth through the woman. So, woman, where did you come from? Well, you came from man. You can't say you're independent. But each man in here, where did you come from? A woman. You can't say you're independent from woman. Isn't that cool? So there's a relational dependency. And of course, as you think about uh, family, we all were dependent on our parents bringing us into the world. And our children were dependent on us. So there's a dependency factor in there with, uh, with humans. But we reflect relationship through those uh, different relationships. We reflect the relationship of God through our human relationships. Okay? And God has eternally been in relationship with himself, the three persons being in relationship. Okay? A lot of information there. Any questions? I don't think I'll be able to get to that box there on the right. Can you go back to the emotion slide real quick? Yes. There you go. Yeah, we'll have to get to that next week. But yeah, next week is going to be pretty exciting. I don't know if any of you have any preconceived notions about if we are body and soul, or if we're body, soul, and spirit, or if we're something else. But we'll talk through that next week and look at several passages on that. It's a good discussion, too. But uh, Any questions on today?
All right, that's good. When you understand the image of God, it, again, it touches on everything that we do as human beings. Why do we fight for the sanctity of life? Well, because babies are made in the image of God. From the moment of conception, whether you believe God is directly creating or indirectly, either way, you believe that's a human being made in the image of God in the womb. Okay? Why do we evangelize? Why do we care about getting the good news out to people? Even the remotest tribes where they're still speaking the native language they've spoke, spoken for thousands of years, no one has ever made it to them. Why do we care about finally reaching them? That's it, because everybody has the image of God, which includes that moral obligation, doesn't it? That includes a future judgment. That includes, you know, this uh, responsibility toward God that no other creature has. So it touches on everything. If you really believe that humans are what we've said they are here this morning, well, that really adds fuel to every part of your life. And you can't say anybody is truly worthless. You can't say uh, anybody is truly, you know, the, the scum of the earth. Now, I know these are phrases we use. In fact, the Bible uses a couple of them. Uh, but we, we can't really mean that literally when we say it. Because every person has value. And every person has an opportunity to know God until his or her dying breath. Okay? It's important stuff. Well, and I pray, and we'll stop a minute or two early. God, again, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to gather. I thank you that so many were able to make it here this morning and ask that you would give us a great time of worshiping together, that we would not only learn more about you today, but that our hearts would be drawn nearer to you today and that we would be drawn closer to one another. Help us to uh, be attentive, to be ready for whatever it is you have for us today, that you would be properly honored in our hearts and minds. And help us to really care for one another as image bearers that we would consider each neighbor of ours to be a true image bearer of yours. That we would care for one another, care for the world as you've called us to do. God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.